Welcome to Short Stack Stories. I'm Jackie. And I'm Liv. We hope you enjoyed our detour from Earth with Ray Bradbury last week, but now we return to our regularly scheduled programming of new stories by new authors. This week's short stack is a timely piece of magical realism called The Rope Bridge by Susan Neville. In The Rope Bridge, the community of Lansing, Michigan is given a mysterious gift of sorts, but one resident fears how little they know about this looming new presence. We are joined by a guest reader very near and dear to our hearts. The incredibly talented Justine Musselman will be reading our eerie short stack story this week. So, get your hands ready for a climb. Just make sure you're home before sunset to enjoy this week's short stack story. The Rope Bridge by Susan Neville Read by Justine Musselman and Liv Early one morning, two weeks ago, we woke up to find a bridge above the river where one hadn't been before. It was made of intricate knotted rope like a macrame hammock. Who, or whatever placed it there, must have worked on it for years in secret and brought it out and fastened it, to what? In the middle of the night. The morning it appeared, parts of it glittered with dew like silver hair, and other parts looked like the bony gray geometric skeleton of a building that miraculously stands after an explosion or a fire. Or, like a film of ice melted in a lacy pattern by grains of salt. Were we surprised by it? Of course we were. But the world had already pushed us off guard this year. What next? We were fond of saying. Well, this is next. The universe had begun answering. What was particularly odd about the bridge, however, was not just the fact that it appeared out of nowhere, but also that it ran parallel to the river, above it, like a river made of string that went in either direction as far as the eye could see. When the river curved, the bridge went straight until it met the river again. Perhaps it was less a bridge than a hovering alternative to water. There were a number of rope ladders hanging down from the bridge, and you could reach the ladders by swimming in the river or by skiff. Once you climbed onto the bridge, you could walk either with or against the current. The rope bridge sagged slightly toward the water when anyone walked on it. And if more than one person was on it at once, it dipped in places and looked like a series of hammocks or a wave. To confuse the metaphor even more, one or two of us thought it resembled a flag, and others a musical staff. The church choir director hummed a tune that the bridge, he said, was notating in the air. He pointed out the pattern of knots along a series of five parallel ropes, 
And sure enough, we could see that too. And those of us who could read music began to hum along and add harmony. It was a beautiful tune, actually, like a Philip Glass minimalist piano piece arranged for a small human choir and August's humming locusts. Very few of us chose to walk on the bridge after that first morning, once we realized we had absolutely no idea what was holding it up. We preferred to marvel at its intricacy. We didn't know whether it was a force for good or a force for evil, to be honest, or how it or its maker felt about us. We didn't know if it meant anything. We didn't even know where it began or where it ended. And yes, of course the first thing we did was send scouts in both directions. The search party that walked to Lake Michigan said it seemed to continue over the water and bend toward the horizon. The search party that walked east said it did the same thing over Lake Huron. Both search parties came back a bit drunk, with coolers full of fresh trout. We couldn't see the bridge at night, though we sensed it from a kind of ionic disturbance in the air. The bridge appeared to appear each morning out of the sunrise and to disappear into the sunset. What to do, what to do? Should we worship it? Report it to the authorities? Start a festival around it? Burn it down? Or should we simply ignore it? Let's go, all the children who lived along the river said. And before we could stop them, they had abandoned the park's playgrounds, their yards, abandoned their balls and dolls and blocks and screens and crayons. They spent the weeks before school was to start swaying in the air above the river. We couldn't stop them. A child who saw a hammock rested in the bridge and watched cottonwood seeds float down from the sky. A child who saw a cocoon spent her days dreaming of wings. A child who saw music plucked at it like a harp. A child who saw waves pretended to be a sailing ship or sometimes a dolphin. A child who saw the skeleton of a bombed out building performed heroic rescues from the ashes of a tower and so forth. They were so eager to get to the bridge every morning that many of them spent the day in their sweet, soft pajamas. They couldn't take the time to change into daytime clothes, though they'd grab a swimsuit on the way out the door. The one thing about the bridge is that after the children had claimed it, if a parent got too close or tried to call a child in before she was ready, there was a hissing sound like a wire about to go bad and the scent of ozone. This worried the adults, as we believed. One plausible explanation for the bridge is that it had something to do with new changes to the power grid, and that one day someone in Lansing would flip a switch and anything in contact with the bridge would be electrified. Someone, someplace, had to know what they were doing, and we still believed in a somewhat logical explanation for things. Though, why the bridge hadn't become a story on the evening news, we also didn't know. So we tried to lure the children away from the bridge, 
we tried to keep them inside the houses. We told them they could eat tubs of buttercream icing. We bribed them with more screens for them to stare into. For instance, we offered tablets to the children who had spent their days watching television longing for tablets, and we gave smartphones to the children who already had tablets. We promised them their own YouTube channels where they would open presents every day and make children who watch their channels jealous. Or we told them we would fill their rooms with inflatables, which were having a moment for some reason, and with animatronics and virtual reality playlands populated by ninjas or Disney princesses. All the things we had formerly denied them. What else could we do? They were a united front. We couldn't lock them in their rooms. They would find a means of escape or they would report us to Child Protective Services. All they wanted seemed to be the bridge. For a while, we sent the older children out each day with picnic baskets, filled with vegetables and filtered water, so the younger ones wouldn't starve or dehydrate, but at the same time weren't having their disobedience reinforced with Pringles. After a while, though, they learned to catch both rainwater and their own fish, and they became truly river children after years of having to be coaxed to leave the house on the finest of days. Meanwhile, outside our town, this was year two of the years the world seemed to be ending. There was slaughter in the streets of the cities, and the nations were run by madmen. And viruses seemed to be in ascendancy as the polar ice caps melted. There was no hope left for children. That's what the children had been telling us for years, but we hadn't listened. They were as heartbreakingly cute as children had ever been, and we loved them fiercely. But there had been a hollow sadness in their eyes. And when you saw them dressed for school each fall, you wanted to sink down on your knees and weep for their beauty and their innocence. You wanted to beg their forgiveness for your complicity in the state of the world. Kara, my neighbor, seemed oddly bored by the bridge, like it was something she'd already seen in a dream. Her unconscious wove the most elaborate dreams every night. Sometimes she would tell me about them, and I would tell her that I never dreamed. Not really. It was a thing I'd left behind years earlier. Kara was a painter, and a good one, I think, though I've never known much about visual art. I don't trust that I have any taste. The closer a painting is to the thing it's portraying as I see the thing, but with perhaps a surprisingly beautiful color or two in the shadows, the more I like it, and I'm likely to buy a copy to hang above the couch. Her ability to paint, she said, was tied to her vivid dreams. She moved into the house next door when we were both in our early thirties, and I went by after a few days with a welcome cake. She told me she and her husband had moved there by the river for inspiration, so they would have the space to devote to painting. Her house had good light in a small barn where her husband had his studio. He painted Kara often, like Wyeth painted Helga. I like those paintings. And she painted miniature pictures of something. She said it was the river, but they seemed like swirls of murky tea with flashes of movement, something darting under the surface. 
They weren't beautiful, but they were, I have to say, fascinating. Her husband's paintings of her were sensual, again, like the Helga paintings, and they sold well. She was an excellent model, with extraordinary skin. And yes, as I think about it, hers was probably the old story of the Muses' tragedy, unspooling itself even while the world was in chaos. Why these stories repeat themselves, I don't know. I was married as well, and my husband and I were both teachers. So during the school year when my children were young, Kara would sometimes watch them during the day. She welcomed the company of children, and she welcomed the money I and others paid her. She had been married twice, and I knew both of her husbands. Both were painters, both taught at universities, and both showed their work at galleries in Chicago. She also had at least one lover, also a painter, that she would meet occasionally in the same Lake Michigan town where Nelson Algren and Simon de Beauvoir stayed in the 40s. She was a bit needy, I supposed, and her need was to be worshipped. I should say that Kara had been pregnant several times over the years, but always tragically miscarried. And when she painted anything other than the river, it was quick watercolors of her golden angel limbo babies, as she called them, the sweet non-children. Her house smelled of turpentine and herbs and yeast, of sun-warmed pine needles and lavender when I went there in the mornings with my coffee. I am a woman, and my husband was a man. But if I had been a woman who loved women, I would have loved her. I understood the pull. We were the best of friends. So in her living room that looks out upon the river, listening to the bubbling sound of the river, the rushing roar of it, during summer break we drank our coffee, or in her case, tea, in the mornings, and sometimes all four of us, Kara and I and our husbands, would get together for a glass of wine at night. In between, she painted, and I puttered. I have summer puttering down to a science. I water the flowers, make new sugar water for the hummingbird feeders, read novels, straighten and sort my possessions, make future lesson plans. I take walks along the river. During the hottest days, I begin or end my walks in the dark. And that's when Kara had begun to swim. After the bridge appeared, she started night swimming. So of course I think she knows more about the bridge than she's saying. She emerges from the river as the sun rises, and the bridge is at its most silver. She emerges a second time, as the sun completely sets. One morning, when she walked from the water, and the bridge came into focus for the day, I noticed that there seemed to be something new about the bridge. Translucent globes had begun appearing. What are those things? I asked her. And she looked over her shoulder at where I was pointing. She turned back around to look at me, and she shrugged. Her mind was someplace else. And her eyes that morning, which were a changeable hazel, were particularly green. 
The orbs on the bridge were small and seemed stuck to the rope, some of them by themselves and some in clusters. Some of them glistened like pearls, some looked like small grapes, and some like balls made of straw and mud. I was sure they were a kind of egg, the glistening ones made from a body's glue and the dull ones formed by a body from river goo and dried sticks. They gave me the creeps for some reason. Like when you pick up a leaf and the back is covered with bumps and you know that whatever is inside the bumps will destroy the leaf. The children didn't seem to be afraid of them, of course. Nor was Kara. But from the moment I saw the first one, I was terrified. I had only one child left at home that summer. My youngest, the boy named Gabe. He was our entire life, the last of our joys, my husband and me. We had spent our lives teaching children and had raised three. Two were now adults. We had watched Gabe climb onto the bridge each morning with all the other children. What could we have done? He was a strong boy, like a gymnast, and he flipped and spun on the ropes in the sunlight. Beautiful boy, he was. But when I saw the orbs appear, I knew I had to keep him grounded. My husband and I looked for a way to keep him home. Take him fishing, I said. Take him out in the lake. Take him out for days. Whatever you do, go north or south, not parallel to the bridge. The orbs are growing, I said. Every day a bit riper. My husband thought I was imagining it, but I knew I wasn't. He agreed to the trip. Something, I said, is going to burst from those orbs, and it's not going to be pretty. It will be sticky and evil, I said, like poison berries. I asked Kara if she would help me protect the children from the bridge, but she didn't seem frightened by it either. What's happening to this world? I asked her. Don't ask me to tell you what I've seen, she said. What do you do at night when you swim? I asked her, and she said, I'm trying to find the beginning of the bridge, and the end of it. The Alpha and the Omega, and the things along the way. She thought it might circle the world, she said, and begin and perhaps end in some place like Slovakia. She had told me, of course, about a man who years ago had said she was beautiful, like women from Eastern Europe, some war-torn region. She thinks he had cursed her in some way, that he was the first of the men who gave her the bad luck, the babies that wouldn't stay inside of her long enough to become living children, the paintings that no one would buy. Why do you think the bridge is about you? I asked her. Because I dreamed it. And then, one morning, it was there. If it's a circle, I told her, it doesn't begin or end any place. You know that, don't you? I think my angel babies are somewhere on that bridge. She finally said to me, And I will find them. When the world itself goes mad, I thought, the mad 
find the answers they've been looking for. It was a Wednesday when we had that conversation, and my husband had planned on taking Gabe and leaving Friday. On Thursday morning, of course, the day was fair. Late August, a cool breeze. My husband packed the car with fishing gear. I made sandwiches and cut fruit for them to take with them. It was just a week left before school was due to start. It was a usual August. There were hurricanes heading towards the coast of Florida and wildfires in California. But in northern Michigan, the weather was as fine as spun sugar. The contrast between light and shadow was sharp as a knife. The colors saturated. All the children, including my precious Gabe, were up in the air that morning, spinning. It was around mid-morning, and we heard a crackling sound. Like some large animal walking through dried leaves, that's what it sounded like. I went outside and stood by my husband. He pointed toward the rope bridge, where the orbs were splitting. Fragile threads like spider legs crawled out from the abandoned shelves. The threads were attached to red globular bodies, like spiders, yes, but unlike them too. We all started running toward the river, toward the children. Kara ran toward us and told us to look more closely. The spiders were spinning down from the bridge toward the river. The children were better where they were, up in the air. The spiders skimmed the river on their hair-like legs towards the shore. They headed toward us, the adults. All will be well now. Kara said, it's like I dreamed. The children will all be well. She whispered to me as the bridge cradled them up high above the rope bridge, snug in their sticky, safe cocoons. Well, that took a bit of a turn at the end. Yes, what a quick, short paragraph that changes the whole (laughs) scope of the universe moving Mm -hmm. forward. Yes. I mean, we had a lot of, like, Justine and I had a great time kind of coming up with a lot of different ideas about what might be happening here. And the one we ended up with was that her character, this person who's narrating the story Mm -hmm. is at like a, not necessarily like an Alcoholics Anonymous type meeting, but like Mm -hmm. a, a, you know, you stand up and you share your story and this is what's going on. And she's like in heaven or something. So yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I could see. I think there's a lot of different metaphors for this story. Yeah. And mostly just kind of like the intergenerational you know, what we might be leaving for our kids, right. what we might be leaving behind, and what the future will look like, honestly. Or so. that the kids are the only ones that were roped off and yeah. lift, pulled into heaven. Right, or remained untouched. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, the kids were all kind of flying in the air while the adults were being approached by these 
scary spider looking creatures <laughs> yeah very uh you know peter pan vibes yeah with that a little bit i'd love to tell you a little bit about susan neville. yeah Alrighty, so Susan Neville is an Indianapolis-based writer whose lifelong reading and passion for fiction and poetry led her to start writing in grade school. She feels most influenced by the works of Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. Willa Cather, Anton Chekhov, specific Ooh. shout out to Constant Garnett's translations, and William Gass. And she feels like her style is a reflection of absorbing sentence rhythms from these writers throughout her life. Neville enjoys writing work that is lyrical and fantastical, but her childhood in the Midwest, as well as her daughter's pregnancy, were the specific inspirations for The Rope Bridge. She hopes to be remembered not just by her body of work, but also for teaching her students to love books. Mm. Lastly, Susan has a high quality taste in breakfast food, (laughs) naming the iconic Eggs Benedict as her favorite. Oh, I love that. Love that. Bring on the holidays. Mm-hmm. Oh, Susan. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and shout out to our lovely and effervescent guest reader, Justine Musselman. Justine is a New York-based actor, creator, and yogi who can be found on Instagram at Justine Musselman. We love our listeners and would love to hear from you. Liv and I also have a fantastic opportunity for our listeners to help support Short Stack Stories. On our Instagram page, at Short Stack Stories Pod, you can find the link to our Buy Me a Coffee page, where fans of this podcast can support our continued growth and the making of Short Stack Stories. Any little drop in the coffee pot counts, and it means so much to us that you spend your time listening to us. If you aren't able to send us a buck or two, a follow on Instagram, or a review on Apple Podcast goes a very long way. Yes, so head on over to our Buy Me a Coffee page. That's buymeacoffee.com slash shortstack. And stay tuned. We have a special gift for our listeners who support us. Keep an ear out. Next week, we will be sharing another short story exploring the future of society, particularly the tools with which we solve conflict. Tick, tick, boom, it will be a good one. And Liv is narrating, so should be a shot in the dark. Hey, I'm always on target. Yikes. (laughs) Thank you for listening. And as always, have a story-stacked week. Short Stack Stories is produced and edited by Jackie Meisner and Liv Vordenberg. This week's story was sound designed by Liv. Our cover art is by Andrew Harley, our script editor is Joe Rowe, and our theme song is by Messina. Tick, tick, boom. <laughs> That's supposed to be a gun for me. <laughs> well, Anyways, Liv, you got to get to work. I do. You got to go sell some breakfast. That's true. I gotta go. You have to go sell some breakfast. Sling some eggs. That's good. Mm hmm.